0: Well, a couple of weeks ago, my wife and I had the opportunity to go out to Denver, actually to Breckenridge, Colorado, to go snow skiing. And uh, just to be perfectly frank, that's not something we do a lot of. So it was kind of a cool and unique opportunity for us. And we started planning for this deal for about two months in advance, which is what you have to do when you have three kids that you're going to leave behind. One age 17, one age 12, one age 9, and each with their own unbelievably busy schedule. So it's like moving in heaven and earth just to get out of town and to leave them behind and and to have it all orchestrated well enough to be able to relax while you're gone. So that was the goal, and we began to move heaven and earth. And by we, just to be really, really clear, I mean Beth. (laughs) In the event that she brought a tomato this morning, I want you to know that my role was mostly that of pestering, which I'm sure she appreciated. But we started moving heaven and earth And my mother-in-law stepped up, and that was a big part of the equation. She said, you know what, I'll stay in your house, I'll watch the kids while you're gone. That is a wonderful thing, that was huge, that was a massive thing we got to check off the list, but she doesn't drive. And getting them to and from places is about eight-tenths of the battle. And I know you're thinking, yeah, but you said you have a 17-year-old, and she drives, and she does, but she's at Westminster Academy. She graduated from Bethany Christian School, and our two youngest are at Bethany still, and the two have different spring breaks. While, while we were gone, she was on spring break, and she was involved in a short-term missions trip that our student impacted... Right here, And so basically, that took her completely out of the equation. I mean, we couldn't even call her on the cell phone, much less rely on her to take the kids somewhere. So that didn't work. So my wife went about trying to find rides, not only to and from school, but to and from absolutely everything else. And there's a lot of everything else. So for example, our 12-year-old Haley is in the Bethany Christian School musical, which is a glorious thing, unless you're going to be leaving town, and you now have to figure out how to get one child home at three, two of the days you're going to be gone, and the other child at 5.30, because she had to stay for play practice. Except for Tuesday, she gets to come home at three, but my son, who has piano practice, on Tuesday has to stay to 4.45. (laughs) Wednesday night, baseball practice. Thursday night, baseball game. Saturday morning, baseball game. Friday, no school. You're thinking, good news. Well, It was good news, except our 12-year-old was part of the child care for the PTF Teachers Appreciation Luncheon. And we all agree that the teachers need to be appreciated massively, but it was one more thing for us to coordinate. So my wife sets about moving heaven and earth to find rides for all of these different events and all of these different things, you know. And not only that, but she created a menu because my mother-in-law can't go to the grocery store. So based on who's actually going to be at the table, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, she created a menu for the entire time that we were gone, went out, shopped, bought all the stuff in advance, had it all in the house, and then she wrote out about eight pages of detailed instructions for every single day. Who needs to be where, when, how they're getting there, and all the contact information plus the menu every single day. So Breckenridge could not come fast enough for us, Right? (laughs) We get on the airplane, uh, no kidding, seriously, we're both still texting out instructions sitting on the plane. I'm like texting Ken Nordstrom, when you pick up TJ for school on Wednesday morning, please be sure that he has his baseball bag because he's going to go home with the offs, and then he's got baseball practice that night, and then when you pick him up on Thursday morning, be sure that he has his overnight bag because he has a game that night and he's going to stay with the offs because there's no school on Friday, and, 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 and. I was so relieved when the stewardess finally got on and said, the captain has requested that everyone turn off all electronic devices. It was like with gusto I threw that thing in my backpack. And we both sort of breathed this collective sigh of relief as if to say, ah, it has arrived. And we flew to Denver, great flight, no problems, no children. <laughs> Not bad. Our friends pick us up and we start driving up to Breckenridge and we stop in this little town of Evergreen and we have lunch outside. It's like 52 degrees outside. Crystal clear day. We're sitting out on this patio. You know, there's like this little stream going by. I'm not lying. There are ducks swimming in the stream. I mean, it looked like a painting, you know. So we stop and have this idyllic lunch. I mean, this is if this isn't heaven, it's close, I'm thinking. So then we finish our ride up to Breckenridge. We get all our stuff in this beautiful house that we're staying in and we're just hanging out. Have been there for maybe an hour, hour and a half, enjoying the beautiful view off the back of the porch of the home and just enjoying our friends. And I'm sitting there and all of a sudden I got this hot flash. And I don't get hot flashes. So I thought, man, that's just weird, you know. Maybe it's just warm in here. I'm taking my fleece off, you know. About a minute later, I'm wiping sweat off my forehead. About a minute after that, I very awkwardly interrupted our conversation. I said, excuse me, guys, but I think I'm going to be sick. And I walked in the bathroom, and some of you are getting nervous because I've been giving you a lot of detail up until now. (laughs) I'm going to skip the detail, but I'm five pounds lighter. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) So I come out of the bathroom eventually, furious that this is going on, and frantically hoping, praying, begging God to heal me, because, I mean, we moved heaven and earth, man. You know, and we don't get to do this a lot. Please, God, heal me, you know? And my friends and wife all gathered around me, and they laid hands on me. Oh, God, heal Tom. Please heal Tom. No, really, we mean it. Would you please heal Tom, you know? (laughs) We're texting out, you know, texting emails. Some of you were praying, please, God, heal Tom. Here's the good news. God healed me. Isn't that wonderful? The day after we got home. <laughs> In between, for the most part, while they were off enjoying the glorious slopes of skiing, still working on my resentments. Um, no, I'm just kidding. I'm glad. I, I didn't want to ruin it for them. You know, I was mostly kind of curled up on a couch with a blanket on, eating, toast and dry cereal. By the way, I recommend this Kashi cereal. It's pretty good. It's got a little bit of a honey flavor to it, so just saying. Sipping on Gatorade and watching March Madness, so at least I got to see some of that. Sitting there learning by experience, the principle that we're going to learn today from the Bible as we return to our study of the Gospel of John together in John chapter 5. And let me just give it to you. Here's the deal. Our God is a healer. Our God heals. He does. But not according to our purposes. Our God heals according to His purposes. And listen, sometimes His purposes and our purposes are perfectly in alignment, praise God, and you are healed, and it's like right on, that's exactly the way I prayed for it, it's exactly when I prayed for it, but many, many more often times... It's about a day after the ski trip ends, isn't it? And sometimes it's when this life ends. There's a healing there too, guys. And I don't think the Lord gets enough credit for that. We pick up our study today in John chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, where John tells us this. He says, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. If you've been hanging with us, you know He's going back and forth between Galilee and Jerusalem, Galilee and Jerusalem. Last time we got together to look at this, He's in Galilee, now He's back in Jerusalem, and His trips to Jerusalem are built around these feasts, it seems. So there's a feast, and Jesus, together with most of the rest of the Jews, go up to Jerusalem, and now He's going to give us a little bit of information, and as we've said all along, the details matter. John says, now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate. Why is that significant? Because the sheep gate is located just north of the temple. He's saying, by the temple, there is this pool of water that in Aramaic is called Bethesda, which means house of outpouring. And so then you've got to stop and go, okay, outpouring of what? And the most obvious answer, it seems anyway, is outpouring of water. It's a pool of water, but I think there may be something more to this, and that... Maybe it means outpouring of healing because in that day there was this belief that occasionally an angel of God would come and he would visit this particular pool and he would stir up the waters of this pool and whoever was the first person into the pool, whoever won the race, if you will, would be immediately healed by God, which means what? What does that tell you about all of the people And there, are a whole bunch of them that have gathered around this pool on this particular day? It tells you that they came to this pool hoping for, praying for, begging dear God for, their friends gathering around praying for, everybody they've emailed praying for healing from God. But not everybody who comes to God is healed. At least not how they want to be healed, and maybe not even when they want to be healed. God doesn't heal according to our purposes. He heals according to theirs or his rather. And so John says in verse 2, he says, now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate just north of the temple a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda. And then he's going to tell us a little bit about it. He says that it has five roofed colonnades. Well, that's kind of cool because it's really hot and sunny there. And so the idea is these colonnades provide shade for those who have come and gathered around this pool, again, hoping for, praying for, begging for healing from God. And he says that in the shade of these roofed colonnades lay not a few people, not a couple of people... But a multitude of people, in fact, not just people, but invalids, people who have come to this pool hoping to be healed from something far more significant than the stomach bug that I had. Listen to the list. Blind, lame, paralyzed, just to name a few. And so then if you think about this, I mean, if you weren't one of these invalids, or if you weren't in some sense related to one of these invalids, you know, your husband, your father, your brother, your friend, and so therefore you had to pick them up early in the morning, early, early, so you can kind of get pole position, you know, by the pool, just in case that this is one of those days that the angel is going to come and stir up the waters and maybe they can roll in quick before somebody else does. Unless that was you, you're one of them or you're related to one of them and you have to bring them to and from this pool every single day. Would you go to this pool? Probably not. It's not a very sanitary place. It's not a very attractive place. Not a very healthy place. If you're a germaphobe like me, you're thinking, not even if they filled the pool with Purell would I go there. (laughs) Jesus goes to this pool. And that says something to us about where we need to go, too. About the kind of people that are on the list of folks that we really and truly need to minister to. So Jesus is going to go to the pool in this story. And many of you know the story or you're reading ahead. Don't read ahead for a minute. Just stop and ask for a second. What do you think he's going to do when he gets there? What would you like for him to do? What would you do if you were him? There is a multitude of people who have been hoping, praying, begging God forever, whose whole family have become part of this effort to get get them there and get them home and get them there and get them home and get them there and get them home. And for how long? Don't you kind of think Jesus is going to walk in and he's going to kind of stride amidst the whole of this group and sort of walk into the center and raise his hands up and just says, you know, Father, heal these people and bam, they're healed. You might expect that. And there's some things about that you got to own. He could do it, couldn't he? That wouldn't stress him out. That, like, it wouldn't tire him. He would need to go now take a nap. It's no more stressful for him to heal one person or to heal a hundred or to heal a thousand. This is the God who spoke the worlds into being. So it's not like it's going to wear him out if he does it. He can do it. But then again, God doesn't always heal us according to our purposes. He heals according to His. And sometimes the purposes are in alignment. Sometimes they're not. John says in verse 3 that in the shade of these roofed colonnades, there lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed, serious problems. And Jesus walks by every one of them. But one. One guy. John says, For there was one man there who had been an invalid, and the prevailing opinion is that he's probably a paralyzed man. He had been paralyzed then for 38 years. And the implication, I think, I mean, I can't prove this, but I think what John is saying in some sense is that this is the guy who probably had been suffering the longest. You know, I mean, this is the guy who had probably come to this pool more frequently, more consistently, and over a greater period of time than maybe anybody else who was there. This guy is sort of the poster child of the Pool of Bethesda. He is the elder statesman of this pool, and he has never won the race into it. One was there who had been an invalid for 38 years, and when Jesus saw Him lying there and knew. See, that's another thing we need to own when we think about this. He can heal. And he does know. He does know. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, Jesus said to him, Do you want to be healed? Because I'm pretty sure this is going to mess up your ski trip. Do you want to be healed? So what do you think he's going to say? No. But it's an option, isn't it? And I think you ought to pause to think about the option for a minute. There is a reality in this life, and the reality is that we can choose to be unhealthy, can't we? In fact, we do it all the time. All of the time. As I just kind of ruminated on this whole idea this week, you know, it it occurred to me that when God comes to us with His wisdom for living, what is that? He's coming to us and He's saying, listen, just like there is a physical order to this world, there is a moral order to this world. Just like I've created all the laws of physics, I've created all the laws of morality as well which reflect my character, and I come to you in my word and I present to you my wisdom for living. I'm granting to you freely the ability to learn to live skillfully in this world. When he comes to us and he does that, what are the terms that he uses? He presents them to us in terms of life and, I'll give you a guess, death, doesn't he? It's like there's a sense in which he's coming to us as sinful, broken, sin-stained creatures who left to ourselves are subject to a wisdom that we need to put in quotes because really it's a foolishness that results in death, and he's coming to us with his wisdom and he's saying, okay, do you want to be healed? Do you? So you got to take and own that and sit there and go, all right, what am I choosing in my marriage right now? Am I choosing life or am I choosing death? It's usually not all that ambiguous, is it? Like, you don't have to go, boy, you know, I don't know. Maybe I am choosing it. You just know in your relationship with your kids, in your relationship with your parents, in your ethics, in your body, what are you bringing forth out of your mouth, life or death? What are you bringing in through your ears and through your eyes, life or death? Death. Jesus says to this paralyzed man, he's afflicted with a different kind of condition to be sure, but he says to him, do you want to be healed? Because snowskian is completely out of the question otherwise. And the sick man answered him and listen to what he says. He says, sir, so he doesn't know who he's talking to. He says, I have no one to put me in the water. when When the water, that's the key, is stirred up. And while I'm going there, for the last 38 years and other steps down before me, but what have we already learned about water in John's gospel? Because we've seen it now numerous times. We've learned that the waters of this world are insufficient. They don't do for us what we really need for them to do for us. And so in chapter 2, when we went to the wedding of Cana of Galilee and we saw Jesus there, they filled up the water parts, the water pots, the purification jars with water that hold forth the promise of making us pure, but don't. And Jesus miraculously turns that water into wine, an emblem of His blood by which we are truly made pure. We traveled with Jesus into Samaria in chapter 4. And we saw him there with the woman at the well, this woman who comes out carrying this water pot that, as we saw, is emblematic of a thirst that is far more than just physical. She has a thirsty soul that she has tried to satisfy with the waters of marriage and the waters of divorce and the waters of sex and the waters of relationship. All of the different waters of this world that she has tried to quench her thirst with have failed her utterly. She comes out to meet Jesus. He offers her an entirely different kind of water, living water. The waters of this world fail. They're insufficient. But Christ is all-sufficient. So when this man that Jesus finds lying beside this pool says to Jesus, you know, hey, I'd really like to be healed, but here's my problem. I have no one to put me into the pool of water when it's stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus then does for this man what the waters of this pool have failed to do. Jesus says to him, and I love this, he says, get up. Isn't that cool? Now, what kind of language is that? Let me translate it differently. He says to this man, rise. Now, what kind of language is that? Because it's almost Easter, guys. It's language of resurrection. Don't miss that. Do you want to be healed? Okay. Okay. Rise, he says. And not just rise, but now what? Rise and take up your bed, this thing that they've been carrying you here on and carrying you home on for how long? Take it up and walk. So he heals him of his physical malady through language of resurrection that calls to life dead muscles and dead nerves and all of this other stuff within him. And then he commands him on how now to live. It sounds a lot like our salvation, doesn't it? Jesus comes and he makes us alive. He raises us from the dead spiritually. And then he says, and now here's how to live. Jesus says, rise, take up your bed and walk and then what happens it says and at once the man was immediately healed and then after about 18 months of physical therapy and rehab in a in a really awesome facility that they had there in Jerusalem he returned to the mat that Jesus had commanded him to pick up and and, and you know he carry away and walk you know and with the cameras rolling and tears streaming down his face you know and all of his family cheering him on woo you know he picks it up and he's like oh, 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 you know and he's like it doesn't happen that way. But now, wait a minute. Let's say that it did. That'd be pretty awesome, wouldn't it? I mean, that would be worth the tears. That would be worth the cheering. That would be worth CNN. That would be worth, you know, putting it on the BBC. I mean, the whole, 38 years paralyzed. 18 months after rehab. Look at what this guy can do. It's better than that. The resurrection voice of Christ calls fully to life that which it calls to life. The dead legs come alive, (laughs) muscles and nerves, and and even the capacity to walk. I mean, it's like even if you had the the muscles and the nerves, if you haven't walked in 38 years, I think there's a little bit of a learning curve that's going to have to occur here. No, actually not. Not for him. It says, and at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed, and walked right then and right there, and then we read, now that day was the Sabbath. And see, if you're familiar with the stories of Jesus from the Gospels, then at that moment you're hearing like some background music, something like, dun-dun-dun-dun. Because this is a problem, isn't it? Picking up your mat, carrying it around, walking around on the Sabbath, right next door to the temple location matters, is absolutely certain to catch the eye of the religious leaders of that temple and not just their eye, but their anger. But I want to ask you something. Don't you think Jesus knew that? Did he not know it was the Sabbath? Did he not know this violated their rules? Not God's law, but theirs. Did he not know that that would get their feathers in a ruffle? God heals us According to his purposes. And his purposes are playing out. John says, Now that day was the Sabbath, and the Jews, meaning the leaders of the Jewish temple just south of the pool, saw this guy. Well, of course they did. And they said to this elder statesman of the pool of Bethesda, This man who had been healed, and not just a little bit, like fully healed. It is the Sabbath, they say, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Now notice what they've missed. He's been fully healed resurrection power. They run right by the fact that this is the poster child for the pool. And they're focused on this law. Can't do this on the Sabbath. Now, it's perfectly lawful according to the actual law of God, just not lawful according to their law. So they're all uptight about this. And notice what he says, but he answered them. He says, the man who healed me That man said to me, take up your bed and walk, and look, when dead muscles come to life and dead nerves come to life and dead capacities come to life, I don't know, I'm just going to go with what he has to say. I'm just going with that. But then it says, now the man who had been healed did not know who it was who healed him. Please notice why. For Jesus had withdrawn. Okay, yeah, but why? Because there was a crowd in the place, in fact, not a crowd, but a multitude, and apparently it did not serve His purposes to heal them all. You okay with that? Whew, that that requires a little in and out breathing, doesn't it? Can you get yourself around that a little bit? What does that mean? It means that sometimes it serves God's purposes not to heal us. How about that one? And it does. And what we need in those moments is the kind of faith that trusts this God with that decision, even though it's not the decision we would make. It's the kind of faith that believes that His purposes are good not just for Him, but for all the rest of us as well. It is good for you, Tom, and I don't know why, to miss this trip. At the very least, it turned me on to a new cereal, so... (laughs) So it doesn't always serve God's purposes to heal us, but it did serve His purpose to heal this guy. And not just to heal this guy, but to heal this guy on the Sabbath. And not just to heal this guy on the Sabbath, but to then command him to break the rules of the religious leaders on that Sabbath by taking up his bed and walking around in it from this location that is immediately well north of the temple knowing all the while that he'd be seen. So the religious leaders see him and they say, you know, you, you're not allowed to do this. And he says, well, maybe you don't understand. Um, I should flex my quadricep for you real quick. That might help clear this up. But in case you've missed the whole miracle thing, the guy who healed me told me to do this. That's why I'm doing it. And they're like, well, that's fine. Who's that? And he doesn't know the answer to that. But Jesus wants him to know the answer to that. And not just him. He wants these guys to know the answer to that, too. And so we read in verse 14 afterward, meaning sometime shortly thereafter, Jesus finds the healed man in the temple, in the temple. And He said to him, See, you're well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you, which I don't think means that, you know, every particular malady that we suffer from in this life is the direct result of the fact that we've committed some particular sin, like there's always some sort of a connection. Sometimes there clearly is. And if you drink yourself to death, you drink yourself to death. It's not hard to connect the dots, for example. And that may have been the case with this guy, we don't know. But Jesus says to him, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. And then the man, John tells us, went away and told the Jews, the leaders of the temple, that it was Jesus who had healed him and then had told him to break the Sabbath, well, their version of the laws of the Sabbath, by carrying his mat on the Sabbath. And you want to go, you know, you little snitch, I can't believe you would do such a thing. And yet, don't you think Jesus knew he would do such a thing? In fact, don't you think he kind of sent him off? He heals according to His purposes, and the plan is playing out rather nicely. So then John tells us, and this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because He was doing these things, these works of healing on the Sabbath, but Jesus answered them, so now He's going to have a little conversation, and He says, my Father is working until now and I am working. What is He saying? He's saying, okay, look, if I'm violating your laws on the Sabbath, well, if you accuse me, you're accusing the Father as well. And that really gets under their skin. And so John says, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more now to kill him. Why? Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, at least according to them, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. And indeed he was, and why wouldn't he? John opened this gospel by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word is Jesus. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh. And He tabernacled, He dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, says John. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. He is equal with God, guys. Why would He not claim to be? That would be misrepresenting Himself. And so now that Jesus, through the vehicle of this miracle, has a platform from which to preach to the religious leaders, and not just to them in that day, but to us today through this gospel. He delivers a sermon which is too long for me to read to you in its entirety. But I'm just going to give you the bullet points. And I think it went over in his day about as well as it probably does in our day. He comes to these guys and says, let me tell you something about what's coming. There is a day coming in which there's going to be judgment. Now, when's the last time you heard that? I mean, outside of here, or maybe even here. You know, these guys haven't thought a lot about judgment, at least not for themselves they haven't thought a lot about judgment, because they figured, you know, because of the life that they're leading, they're the holiest people in the world, and therefore they're cool on judgment. Jesus is like, no, 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 judgment coming. The judge, that would be me. The Father has given that authority to me, and let me tell you what's going to happen on that day. On that day, my resurrection voice will be heard again. And the dead just like the dead muscles in this man's legs, the dead nerves, the dead capacities sprang to life, so it will be on that day. And every person on this planet will come forth either to a resurrection unto eternal life or a resurrection unto judgment. And just in case we're confused on what the difference is, he says, the Father in whom there is life Just like there's life in the Father, there's life in me. And here's how you have eternal life. You believe in me. Faith in this one who in his sufferings and death on the cross received for his people the eternal judgment we deserve, that we might have the eternal life that he deserves and earned for every single one of us. And I love what he says in verse 34. It's like dead center pretty much in the middle of this sermon. He says to these guys, but not just to them, see, to us. He says, I say these things so that you may be saved. It's cool, isn't it? So about the fifth day of our ski trip, as it's starting to wind down, you know, I'm convalescing on the couch and eating my Kashi cereal. Changed it up a little bit with Cheerios at times, honey nut, not bad. Sipping my Gatorade, wrapped up in a blanket as everybody else is, you know, coming in from from having fun. And uh, one of our friends comes in, one of the hosts, you know, the owner of the home comes in and she put her stuff down on the counter and she looked at me and she said, well, I guess God just did not want to heal you on this trip. And I said, you are absolutely right. That is good theology. (laughs) Because he could do it. And he knows all about it. But he didn't. Apparently it served his purposes. And I don't profess to know what those were or are to not heal me. But I know why he healed this guy. So that he could stand before you today through this gospel and proclaim a gospel of salvation. Jesus says, I'm saying these things to you so that you may be saved. There it is. Amen. Let's pray.